On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Hi, everyone. I have a special announcement. I've been invited to join Wisdom. Wisdom is an app where mentors can actually have live conversations with their audience and you can ask questions, you can join the conversation, you can share your experiences. And I'm really excited about this opportunity to be a part of this kind of ground floor um, component of joining Wisdom. So check it out, it's called Wisdom. You can download it on at the App Store. And tomorrow I'm going to do my very first talk. The talk's gonna be all about how to reverse chronic disease. And of course, we can talk about plant-based diets. We can talk about a lot of different things. But I think especially I'd like to talk about habits um, that are really important to understand that, food addiction. In addition to that, I'd really like to discuss mindset because a lot of times people feel like they're going to be deprived of all these things that they're accustomed to. However, if we think about all the things that we're actually going to be gaining, that really helps build these new habits that are going to lead to a long and really healthy life. So I hope to see you there. Don't forget, it's called the Wisdom app. I'm going to do it tomorrow at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. You just look for my, there's a link here in our uh, show notes, but you can also just look for my profile under Dr. Lori Marbus on the Wisdom app, and we'll see you there. Talk to you later. Bye. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Anna Lamke, the author of Dopamine Nation. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, thank you for coming. I listened to your interview actually with Rich Roll, who's a friend, and oh, I was <laughs> instantly obsessed with the book because then I was like downloading, I run and I was listening to it. And it was just so um, reminding me of everything that I deal with just as a primary care doc. So could you tell us a little bit about number one, before we dive into the book, what made you decide to even become a doctor? As I feel that kind of lays the groundwork for people to understand your personality and where you're coming from. Yeah. Thanks for that question. So, I mean, from a very early age, I really just wanted to be useful. I had this strong desire to feel needed and that I was you know, contributing something. And I've always been very interested in people and what makes them tick. So although I didn't go straight to medical school, it was a, ultimately a very natural choice for me. And then psychiatry was a natural choice because of my, just my interest in the brain and human emotions and wanting to have relationships through time with my patients. Oh, that's interesting because I kind of took a circuitous way to the medical school as well. Went a little bit later, um, six years after most people. What what was your journey to medical school? What was the the reason that you decided to go into medical school if you delayed it? Yeah, well, um, I mean, actually, first I spent some time living in China and teaching English there, and then I was an elementary school teacher for a while, and then I ultimately decided that I didn't want to work in the public school system, and that medical school would be a nice way to sort of bring together my interest in science with my interest mm -hmm. in people. So it was a natural choice in the end. Fantastic. I love that, that you spent some time outside because I feel like it makes you a better physician instead of going directly from medical, you know, from college to medical school. Um, definitely. Yeah. My daughter's a physician now too. And I'm ah, glad nice. she took a gap. Yeah. She took yes. a gap year. So I'm glad it did her some good. So yeah, <laughs> no, I think that's really right. When I, you know, most of the people in medical school, when I went to medical school, 
had gone straight through. And it was sad. Mm. They were so burned out on school, really, and on learning. They had worked so hard to get there. Whereas because I had worked in the real world, you know, for a good three years, I was just so happy to be in school again. It was so easy, right? Oh, I just get to sit here in a classroom and learn things, (laughs) you know, compared to having to deal with a bunch of junior high kids in a, in a lunchroom, which really oh was my. like the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I went back to school six years after finishing college and I had my three kids between, so I stayed home and I'm so thankful that I did that. It made a, just made me really appreciate um, anybody that works and is a mom and understand that as you are as well. So that's fantastic. Um, and then you know, getting to Dopamine Nation, because you were also in Social Dilemma, which is a great documentary. You wrote Drug Dealer MD, which is truly fascinating coming as a physician. Um, that's, that is not our topic today, um, but which I feel like we could definitely talk about at, at length. But what, made, what was the impetus to write Dopamine Nation? That is just, it's such a good book. Oh, thank you. You know, I think it was a culmination of many years of my thinking about the problem of pleasure and pain and what constitutes the good life and, you know, the struggles that we all have today in the modern world, trying to figure out how to be happy, essentially. Mm. Um, You know, the phenomenon of seeing more and more patients from privileged backgrounds with wonderful parents, access to elite education who are really unhappy, trying to puzzle that out. Um, you know, what is driving our individual and collective unhappiness when we have so much. Mm-hmm. And then also in many ways, it was sort of written in homage to my patients who are my heroes, um, their remarkable recovery, what I had learned from them, what I felt like they could teach others. Mm. I think one of the best bit of advice I ever got when I was a student, a uh, medical student was, you know, if you just listen to your patients long enough, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. And I really feel that kind of is, is really blasted throughout your book because you're just so humble and appreciative of what they're being they're, you're teaching you you always oh, come in yeah. with that thank you for saying that you know I had sort of an epiphanal moment at some point in my psychiatric residency where I realized that if I would take off the hat of trying to solve my patients problems and instead just listen and try mm-hmm. to understand their experience that I was just a better doctor it was like it was like a moment where It was actually because I was doing a little bit of a research study where I wasn't in the doctor role. I was just trying to get patient stories. And not only did I get better information from the patient, but I had so much more fun, right? Mm -hmm. And I learned so much more. And so I think that's really what I try to remember. Of course, it is my job to try to help patients, but ultimately in many ways, we're just witnesses to their journey. I, that's that's a great phrase, witnesses to their journey, because honestly, it takes the pressure off you too. You right. don't have to have all the answers or all the right. answers right now. You're on the journey together. You're kind of riding this train together and see where it goes. Um, that's right. Very true. And then, so as far as you speak to um, in the book, when you start the book, for those, it's a, it can be a little graphic for a sensitive listener. So I definitely wouldn't do it with your kids. <laughs> in the car. Um, it's a good, it's a good listen to, I feel like for, um, adults, but you do, you do speak of some pretty graphic, uh, introduction. What gave you that, um, idea to start the book with the gentleman with the, the sex addiction? Um, a couple things, first of all, you know, when I met him and learned about the fact that he had made a machine, you know, to, to masturbate, and that was the 
point to which his addiction had progressed, it sort of hit me that his story was really a metaphor for all of us and that in many mm -hmm. different ways we were all kind of influenced by the technology. In many ways, our smartphones and our devices are like our own masturbation machines. We're now able to go to these machines to meet so many of our fundamental needs, our need for uh, emotional connection, our need for sexual gratification, uh, learning, uh, you know, so many things. And my enduring worry that, uh, that although the technology is amazing um, and can create real um, meaningful and positive human connections, it's also potentially incredibly isolating. And he became extremely isolated as he progressed, progressed in his addiction. So it was, a, his story was a metaphor for modernity, mm. but also I wanted to draw parallels between his severe, quite severe sex addiction and my own kind of compulsive overconsumption problem with romance novels, which, um, you know, progressed over the course of a couple of years where I started with the Twilight Saga, as many women my age at that time, um, you know, and, and it just kind of went on from there. My, the Kindle made it, you know, um, the Kindle kindled, uh, my behaviors, so to speak, you know, where <laughs> yeah. I just, I didn't have to go to the library anymore. I could just download another book and I just kind of got out a little bit out of control. And so I also wanted to, I really honestly felt that had a few variables been different in my life, I could have ended up as addicted as my, my patient Jacob. Mm. So I wanted to, you know, make addiction, not something that other people experience, but something that really we're all vulnerable to. Mm. I think honestly, that took a lot of courage, right? To one, to speak as a physician, but then also speak of the frailty that you are as a human as well, because that just makes you more humble and more likable in my book. So, you know, we do all suffer and, and deal with all these difficult things. It's almost like, I think we're, in my mind, I think we're always seeking happiness, but life isn't always happy. That's just, unfortunately, that's the way life is. That's yeah. just what's going to be hard is from day one. Right, you know? right. Um, and that's, I think once we can accept that, I think yeah. it's a lot easier just to have joy and that would be the easier way. But do you feel like there's an addiction to seeking the happiness or is it just this biochemical thing that's going on? Or maybe we could explain, maybe we'll get back to the basics. What is addiction? And then we can just kind of maybe tether it out from there. Yeah. So addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Mm. In the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's summarized by the four C's, control, compulsion, cravings, and consequences, combined with tolerance and withdrawal. Tolerance is needing more of the drug over time to get the same effect or more potent forms to get the same effect. And one of the really salient features in the modern ecosystem is how potent so many drugs have become, again, making us all more, more vulnerable to addiction. And then also the phenomenon of withdrawal, that when we stop using, we experience, you know, sometimes quite subtle psychological symptoms of withdrawal, but nonetheless, they're there, things like irritability, insomnia, anxiety, and depression. Hmm. So there's a wide variety of things. So in the context of you know, we're used to hearing alcohol abuse or drug abuse, but more subtly, you speak to using our smartphones and food addiction, but I'd like to hone in on food addiction if that's okay, because yeah. I really feel it's an under-realized problem. I think yeah. there's, because we have to eat, and so, but I deal with patients who are obese, diabetic, hypertensive. I actually run a 
national telemedicine practice all about lifestyle medicine where we help people make better habits and get right. reverse and improve yeah it's, yeah it's a lot of fun let me tell you it's the best job ever because yeah, um, the patients are pre-selecting and wanting to get well it's just yeah. absolutely wonderful that's nice what do you, what do you see? Cause I am also been listening recently to the book. I haven't finished it, but the body keeps score and understanding trauma as a base for a lot of, especially when you talk about food addiction and different things, what is your thoughts on the food addiction and the severity of these types of things and what can people do or those who are trying to help them? Well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that the problem of compulsive overconsumption of food has really not been conceptualized as addiction. It's been conceptualized as a bunch of different things, um, but it hasn't really been appreciated for what it is, which is that it is really an addiction and that it's the drugs that have, that are addictive, right? So it's the combination of the person's innate vulnerability to compulsive overconsumption of food combined with drugs that have been engineered to be addictive. And this really can't be underemphasized. We are living in a time and place when food is a drug. It's yeah. packed with salt. It's packed with sugar. It's packed with fat. It's packed with chemical flavoring that doesn't even exist in nature, but that mimics things that are in nature. It's made to be incredibly potent by combining flavors together to create things like French toast ice cream, as if French toast alone or ice cream alone weren't enough. But what happens as we develop tolerance is we need more potent forms to get the same effect. And one of the ways to create potency is to combine drugs. So I think it's really helpful to acknowledge that food has been drugified and that yes, people come with different vulnerabilities for addiction to food, but that the food itself can turn you into somebody with addiction. So I think that that's like a sort of a first important starting point. So you're saying, you know, not only do someone come in, does someone come into this very unhealthy environment that we're living in and expect people to use quote unquote willpower, which I struggle to even see that it doesn't right. work at all, much less right. if it exists. Mm -hmm. And we really struggle with that. But you're saying the food in and of itself being introduced to food, especially like I think about kids, right, who come into this world and whose mothers were probably eating junk food or processed foods when they were pregnant, who knows what epigenetics are occurring there. And then we give these kiddos drugs literally on their plates every day. Right. Um, so that yeah. can become the addiction. No, I mean, I think this is really a key point here. You know, I recently um, saw a patient who had been an obese patient who had been told that she should engage in what was called intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. And intuitive eating is this idea that, well, if you just sort of eat whatever you feel like in the moment, you know, you'll, you'll be healthy and, you know, your apostat will normally set itself, but, but she gained 40 pounds, you know, in, mm -hmm. intuitive, and she was already obese. And I, I think the reason, you know, how to, how to explain to her what happened, why did intuitive eating not work for you? Because you know, a, a thousand years ago, intuitive eating makes a lot of sense when you're mm -hmm. surrounded by unprocessed foods that you have to walk tens of kilometers for every day to obtain. You have to grind the wheat into flour. You know, you have to build the oven to make it. You, there's no mm -hmm. sugar, there's no salt, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, that's the kind of environment that our brains reward and motivation wiring is designed for. We're not designed for the world we live in now. And intuitive eating won't work because the food itself causes our brains to want more of it. It is a vicious cycle because mm -hmm. of 
you know, this pleasure pain balance, neuroadaptation, and the opponent process mechanism. Two things I love about that. One is you're exactly right. This the intuitive eating certainly heard about. I think we're born with the ability to be intuitive eaters. Like we instead of don't force your kids to keep eating when they say they're hunt, you know, they're right. done. They'll they'll eat later. I promise they won't starve to death. Um, but also in the sense that, you know, what I like to use is I eat a like ritual, um, a whole food plant-based diet. So we have some parameters and some, there are some guardrails for my folks to work right. within. So when they bounce outside of that, what's really interesting is you have this period, they do really well. And if everyone doesn't matter, they'll always have a little slip up here or there and they don't feel well physically. Right. And they actually can, it's like, they're being reminded of like, oh, okay going back to where they felt well and then that food what it did how it did made them not feel well so that was actually a really good lesson um from the standpoint of what have you seen for folks outside of being very prescriptive with the diet is there anything else that people can do in this food environment to help them kind of overcome it what did you tell your patient who was had gained the 40 pounds yeah well i mean i basically told her we're living in a in a, in a world where food has become a drug Mm -hmm. And like any drug, we have to limit our consumption. So your idea of guardrails is exactly right. And you use one of the self-finding strategies that I recommend in the book, which is categorical self-finding. And there are many, you know, you can be gluten-free, you can be paleo diet, you can be vegan. All of those are just a way to kind of put guardrails up and say, okay, I, I'm going to keep my consumption to this food category listen, we all have eating disorders in the modern world mm. of one form or another, because we cannot just eat whatever we feel like in an environment where food has become drugified. And there's an infinite, like virtually an infinite quantity for most people living in the developed world. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing, you know, creating these categories as, as guardrails. The other thing is um, using, I'm really I'm a proponent of intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. I think that can be super helpful, especially for bowel rest and to give people who have irritable bowel syndrome or gastroesophageal reflux disease, to give their gastrointestinal system downtime to recover from the whole digestive process. It's not for everybody, but some kind of intermittent fasting like an 8-16 rhythm, I think can be super helpful and especially or, uh, avoiding late night eating, something that I really recommend. Again, because of the you know, reflux and, and GERD, but also the way that our metabolism fluctuates over the course of the day in terms of our cortisol. Um, and then, um, so using time, using categories, and then obviously the other self-finding strategy is using space, right? Um, using actual geographical barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice. So this would be things like just not having potato chips and cookies in the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, my favorite saying is home has to be your safe space. That's right, yeah. <laughs> It doesn't matter who you are. For me, it's the Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Not just one, it'll be gone. The entire yeah, sleeve yeah. and then the box. So that's right. Um, <laughs> someone doesn't like me, you know, they've given me. <laughs> um, but as far as um, I really like to touch also about the pleasure pain balance that you speak to, because I, I think that'll help people understand why they don't why that craving can be stronger and what they want more of it. Cause that really was actually epiphany for me listening to that. I was like, wow, that's a great way to explain it. Yeah. So you know, one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the last hundred years or so is that the same part of the brain that processes pleasure also processes pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So when, when, for example, I eat a piece of chocolate, cause I love chocolate my balance tips to the side of pleasure. I get a little release of dopamine in the reward pathway. 
but, but one of the rules governing this balance is that it doesn't want to be deviated very long to the side of pleasure or pain. It wants to remain level. So this is uh, in a level balance is called homeostasis. So the brain will work very hard to restore homeostasis. And it does that by adapting to the increase in dopamine in the reward pathway by downregulating my own dopamine production and my own dopamine transmission. This is called neuroadaptation. And one of the ways to visualize this is to imagine these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. And those gremlins represent neuroadaptation, but the gremlins like it on the balance. So they stay on until it's tips an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that is that moment of wanting a second piece of chocolate. Now, if I wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored and that feeling goes away. But if I don't wait, if I continue to eat more and more chocolate, eventually what happens is that that initial response or deviation to the side of pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response gets stronger and longer as more and more gremlins accumulate on the pain side of my balance. And they, again, really like it there. So it can take quite a while for them to get off. And once that happens and we're in basically a dopamine deficit state or walking around with the balance tilted to the side of pain, then I need to eat, keep eating chocolate, not to like enjoy the taste of chocolate, but just to feel normal. Mm. When I'm not eating chocolate, my balance is tipped to the side of pain and I'm experiencing universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are craving for that substance, as well as anxiety, irritability, restlessness, insomnia. And also really importantly, other things are no longer enjoyable, right? Because now I've changed my hedonic or joy set point tilted to the side of pain because I'm in this dopamine deficit state. And remember, dopamine is sort of the, the universal currency for all rewarding substances and behaviors. So that's essentially what happens when, we're, when we continually bombard our reward pathway with food, with digital products, uh, with alcohol, with cannabis, with what you name it, Netflix binges, it's more than our brains can handle because we weren't wired for that, right? We were wired for a world of scarcity and danger, but we're living in this incredible world of overabundance and our brains are reeling to try to compensate. And they're doing that by downregulating our dopamine production, our endocannabinoid production, our endoopioid, our serotonin, our norepinephrine, and we're walking around in this state of constant craving, restlessness, anxiety, insomnia, and depression. Well, there's a couple of questions. Um, two two ways we can go with this because two of your patient stories come to mind. I live in Colorado, so you know we're we're like to be progressive and right. <laughs> one, I was like in 2014, and as a parent of teenagers at that time, I don't know if they were still teenagers, a few of them, but you know there there was obviously great concern because I definitely see that as a gateway to bigger issues and problems. Um, but you had used you know, time. So maybe we can speak to the time element that you say that the gremlins are hanging on right. and causing you the pain. Where, what about is that? Where's, is there a specific time frame that for a specific definition or a type of addiction? Like where should we begin to even think, okay, I only need to last two days, 30 days, whatever it is. Right. I know you speak yeah. to about. Yeah. So, so in my, in my clinical experience across many different types of drugs from video games to alcohol, to cannabis, it takes about 30 days for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance for us to upregulate our own dopamine production and for homeostasis to be restored. Mm -hmm. Of course, for some people, they're, they're going to be faster than that. For other people, it may take longer, but on average, in my experience, the first two weeks are hell 
when those gremlins are, you know, wildly hop, hopping up and down on the pain side of balance, and we feel really like it will never end. That's a really hard, hard moment because we feel like, oh my gosh, you know, this is how I'm going to feel without my drug, but it's not, it's just how it's withdrawal. And if you can mm -hmm. just make it through the withdrawal, you know, those gremlins will eventually hop off and you will be in a, in a very new and better place where you're not constantly craving and you're not constantly, you know, unable to experience any kind of pleasure. But those first two weeks are really hard. Then weeks three and four start to get easier. And, and by the end of week four, by 30 days, most patients are in a really different place. Mm, okay. Yeah. Cause your story about the young woman with the cannabis addiction and yeah. then her anxiety and how her stopping at the anxiety went away. I mean, that was just such a wonderful story to highlight that I share with many patients as oh, well. Good, yeah. Yes. Oh, I recommend your book to a lot of folks. Trust me. Oh, um, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and then the other part of that is using pain as a way of dealing with, you know, the, the seeking or wanting the pleasurable thing of your addiction, your, your idol that you're seeking. Cause you speak to another patient who uses with using cold, <laughs> right? Ice cold water baths. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that's really fascinating to me about this pleasure pain balance is that just like pressing too much on the pleasure side, eventually resets our reward pathway to the pain side. If we press on the pain side, we can reset our reward pathway to the pleasure side. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that is to do things like exercise, um, to do other, you know, immediately challenging or painful sensory things like take ice cold water baths but also psychologically challenging things um, in doing creative things or intellectually challenging things or exposing ourselves to anxious situations. All of that is hard in the moment, but what it does is it tells our body, oh, wait a minute, I need to now upregulate my own healing mechanisms in order to compensate for this external challenge. And what that means is that our gremlin, we got gremlins hopping on the pleasure side of our balance. And remember with repeated exposure, that after response gets stronger and longer so that we're basically making little dopamine factories. Like whenever I exercise, even though I really, you know, I'm hurting, I say to myself, okay, I'm making dopamine. And that dopamine is kind of like money in the bank. It's going to last me for several hours through the course of my day after I'm done. That makes sense. And, you know, mood, they say is a good eight hours after exercise. It's a, a natural antidepressant in a sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, well, once we get, you know, habituated to daily exercise, we get tolerant, right. Mm -hmm. And then we might have pain if we stop. So it's, it's hard, but then, but so that's why you don't, you don't want to overdo exercise either. I mean, you know, any of this kind of is within those sort of moderate limits. So that's interesting question. So I know a lot of folks who I'm a runner, love running, maybe a little addicted. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it is my place of solace and quiet. And so yeah. my brain calms down. But as far as, you know, like Rich, for example, or some of the others that I know who came from a very serious substance abuse, be it alcohol or drugs, turn to quite uh, extreme endurance races, running hundred miles, uh, doing ultra triathlons. Um, you know, I ran one marathon and I was like, wow, I would love to run a little longer. I'm not quite sure and getting a little older. So, but <laughs> you know, the thought of it's quite daunting, but others thrive on it. Yeah. And so even when it's harmful to them physically, do you feel like that's just a substitution of the addiction? 
You know, I, it can be, but I, I don't think that it is for people who are wired for that kind of intensity. And mm. when I think about people who are sort of innately wired for severe addiction, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, those are absolutely the people that you would want in your tribe, right? Because they were willing to go a lot further and work a lot harder to find, you know, that berry bush or just a little, you know, puddle of water or something that the whole right. tribe needed to survive. So it's, it's fortuitous and advantageous for the tribe to have some individuals like that. The problem is that those very individuals who might've been, you know, fundamentally important for the tribe's survival in a world of scarcity are now the same people who um, are struggling in, you know, struggling the most potentially in our modern ecosystem of, of overabundance. So they're wired for that kind of intensity. So for them, they're gonna need more, more on the pain side of the balance than maybe the average person. Um, you know, for, so for them, they're going to need to be that ultra marathoner in order to ultimately, you know, to de develop some kind of healthy homeostasis. Mm. Of course, it is possible to take it too far, you know, and when it crosses over into them getting injured and, but still not stopping or interfering mm. with relationships and other things. I mean, sure, there's, it's, it's definitely possible to get addicted to pain. Um, and I've seen that happen, but most of the time, you know, it's, it can be, you know, an adaptive level of intensity for somebody who's wired for that much intensity. Mm, that's a good way to look at it. Just their wiring's a little different. Like yeah. some would like to go skiing down a mountain at 80 miles per hour. And I'm just like, oh, let's walk on down. <laughs> you know, so yeah. um, having children who are quite the daredevils, um, <laughs> I guess they just don't have that. I don't know where they got the wiring. Must be their dad. Right. But um, right. so <laughs> when you seek to help someone, let's say that, well, let's say this. Do you feel like it's easier to overcome the addiction to the processed food? So let's say someone was given the processed food and to develop the addiction versus someone who's using it as a substitution or a mechanism of dealing with the trauma and other things going on mentally, perhaps, or pain. Are there two approaches to these two different folks? Because I feel like I definitely see two things happen when I work with patients. Like some do very well and they never relapse. Like they just go. They're like, I'm like, how did you do that? I'm always <laughs> thinking. But yeah. then there's those that really struggle. Like they'll hit, I have one patient, she hits 200 pounds and she does something mentally that just says, no, I'm not going there. Hmm. And she gains it right back. Um, you know, maybe five, 10 pounds, but she just, she'll do so well. And then just, it's like hitting a wall. Hmm. And I just don't know what to do to help them. Do you have any idea or thoughts about that? Well, you know, we do, I mean, addiction is a spectrum disease, right? Just like yeah. any other disease, people have mild, moderate and severe forms. So, I mean, I conceptualize somebody who's a chronic relapser as somebody with just an incredibly severe form of the disease of addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, just like some people have bad cancers, you know, and other people respond right away to chemotherapy and never, never have a recurrence. So I don't think that the, you know, the intervention is necessarily different except for maybe like the dose and using more of a multimodal modality, mm -hmm. you know, like, for, for a person with a mild addiction, maybe all they need to do is go to AA or Food Addicts Anonymous and they're good. A person with a more severe addiction might need Food Addicts Anonymous plus individual therapy, plus topiramate, plus, you know, a personal trainer, um, plus, you know, individual psychotherapy. I, I don't know, you know, you just need to keep 
sort of adding these multi multimodal modalities uh, to kind mm. of get at it from all these different angles. Mm. Okay. So where would someone go? So let's say someone are, let's maybe I should go to this way. When should, would someone be able to say, you know, I think I need help with this addiction. So are there certain questions, you know, to look at someone, how do we help patients or help people see this isn't un is healthy for me? How do we help them kind of open their eyes and drop the, 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 the color glasses they may be seeking through, or is there questions that we could ask ourselves about behavior? Because like you said, we all suffer from some sort of addiction. For me, it's like Netflix binging. Like I told my husband, I was like, we cannot preview anything right. that has a series. It mm -hmm. has to be one yeah, no, <laughs> movie I, I, at a time. You're not alone in that, trust me. <laughs> and by the way, they engineered those to be addictive. You know, they always oh. end on cliffhangers, they have that button, you know, front and center to click on next episode. Who's not going <laughs> to click on that? You know what I mean? I mean, like exactly. maybe if there's a fire in the house, I won't <laughs> click on that. But oh, short of yeah. that, I'll be clicking on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I have this acronym dopamine, which I think is a nice framework for approaching this problem in, in almost anybody, no matter where they lie in the spectrum of compulsive overconsumption to addiction. Um, and it starts with D stands for data. So just kind of telling another human being what you do, how much of you, you do it, you know, how often kind of getting the facts of consumption. The O stands for objectives. Why do you do it? What, what are the positives in your life? You know, I think we need to validate what, what's reinforcing or positive about, about that in order to understand, because a lot of times people are reaching for their drug without even really thinking through why. And so to stop and kind of go, wait, what is that actually doing for me? Oh, it's numbing me. It's helping me escape my thoughts. You know, who knows? It's making me feel, you know, rewarded. Like what is the psychology there? I think is really helpful. The P of dopamine stands for problems. That's where we kind of write down or tell another human being. Telling a human is really the best way to go. I think um, like, what are the problems associated with use? You know, am I gaining weight? Do I have heart disease? Thinking about food addictions. Mm -hmm. um, am I just losing a lot of time, you know, a lot more time doing this thing than I really want to? Am I doing things against my values? You know, am I living a double life? Is my health compromised? Mm. And then the A of dopamine stands for abstinence. So this is really, I think, a critical um, experiment and often can be very revealing where people realize for the first time that they're addicted to something when they try to stop it. One of the best ways to really discover whether or not, you know, how a biological system works is actually to try to change something in that system and then see how the whole system responds. So I do think this 30 day dopamine fast from our drug of choice is really instructive. Um, I often have patients saying, well, I, I didn't really realize I was addicted until I tried to give it up. And I mm -hmm. saw how hard that was. And I had withdrawal, you know, I had those psychological symptoms of withdrawal or maybe even physical symptoms too. The um, M of, the, of dopamine stands for mindfulness. This is sort of learning to sit and deal with those uncomfortable feelings without trying to cover them up with our drug. The I stands for insight. This is where the exercise allows us to discover the true impact of our drug use on our lives. When we're chasing dopamine, it's really hard to see true cause and effect. It's only when we get some distance that we can really see what our use is doing to us and the people around us. And then um, the N stands for next step. So if I succeed in the 30-day dopamine fast, then I make a list of pros and cons. What was good about it? What was bad about it? Often the goods outweigh the bads. And then I have to decide, okay, do I want to continue to abstain for another month or do I want to go back to using? 
most of my patients want to go back to using, but they want to use differently. They want to use less and they want to have a different kind of attachment toward their drug. They don't want it to control them. They want to be in control. So then we talk about in detail, and this is the key, the detail piece. Okay, what is that going to look like? So if you have a food addiction, what exactly are you going to eat? And if you're going to introduce cakes and cookies, like what's going to be the limit? Is it just going to be on Fridays? Is it just going to be for special events no more than once a month? What's going to be the quantity? Is it going to be one cookie? Is it going to be two cookies? Is it going to be cookies plus wine? Or is it going to be just a cookie? Is it going to only be cookies with other people? You know, thinking it all that through and really make, you know, mapping it out. Okay, what, what? So there has to be pre-intention, right? So we have to kind of project ourselves into the future. And as you say, make these guardrails and really be committed you know, to ourselves, but often to others too. Okay, I'm gonna stay within these bounds. Um, and then the E for dopamine stands for experiment. That's where I then go out into the world with this plan, but also importantly, a pleasure pain balance with, that's homeostatic, that's at level so that I can experience other rewards. It is much, much easier. And I've done the experiment a million times with my patients and in my own life. It's much easier to go from using a lot to using none and then using in moderation than it is to go from using a lot to using in moderation. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Because when we're using a lot and we try to go to moderation from that, we never get to homeostasis, right? But if we using a lot and we abstain, we restore a level balance. We can enjoy other things. We're free from intrusive thoughts of craving. And then we can introduce, you know, in a measured way, um, you know, very modest um, portions and timings of our drug of choice. Mm. So you, you have to get to the homeostasis before you re-engage with your substance of choice, basically. That's right. Okay. That's right. That I love this because this, this just, you know, for me, it just exclaims mindfulness throughout the whole process. You're just kind of pulling out of, out of the just reaction habit and then just bring in the thinking part of it. It's critical thinking right. side of right. things. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I love the detailed specific rules. Do you have any shortcuts to help patients think about? Is it, is it only on this day times, like, do you have them write it out? Do you have them journal during this whole process? What does the process look like for a patient when they begin this journey of, of the dopamine, which I think is brilliant. Do you have a handout yeah. I can steal? Yeah. yeah. So we're, I'm making it, we're making a workbook. So hopefully we will have a bunch of sort of an actual workbook that patients will work it through, but you're, you're actually, you're, you're absolutely journaling or writing it out. Keeping close track is really important, especially in the early stages. If people just sort of try to vaguely remember in their head, it will definitely get away with them from them. So mm -hmm. it's really writing it out, you know, journaling, okay, what did I do? And if there's a slip, you know, not to beat, beat ourselves up, but to say, okay, well, what happened? What were the kind of ingredients of the slip? Um, wh when did the slip actually start? Because oftentimes a slip starts earlier than the actual moment that we're, you know, using our drug. It sort of started maybe a day before when we were triggered because we talked to a friend, uh, you know, about using the drug or just saw that friend that we used to use with, um, which in and of itself triggers dopamine, which in and of itself then drives craving. So kind of mapping that all out and being kind of mindfully aware. One thing that's really for certain, if you just try to put it on the back burner and say, I'm not going to think about it, that never works. <laughs> it really has to be on the front burner and be a project. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because all this stuff is going on inside our brains. But really, until we make it a project that almost lives here outside, 
it, we don't get a handle on it. We need to like build this castle sort of in the air that we're kind of almost literally seeing in front of us as we add different pieces to it. I mean, do you feel like that just brings it to the focus and the brain will focus where your interest and intentions are, right? It's just kind of yeah, absolutely. keeps upon itself. Absolutely. I, lo I love this. It's kind of like a root cause analysis, so to speak. Yeah. So you're, <laughs> when I was in the military, that's a huge part, in the, or even just in, in medicine in general, you do those kind of rapid cycle improvements, yeah. quality improvement cycles. I, but, um, but yeah, there's so much there. That would be a fabulous workbook. I can't wait for it to come out. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got a lot going on. Um, but I know we're closing in and you have uh, other patients to see, and I'm so excited for your time. I do want to just ask a few more questions. One is for someone who is just venturing into this and they're like, like you said, we all have our, our thing uh, or things, multiple things, you know, for others, I just want to touch upon about the emotional side of addiction from the side of anxiety, because then I almost feel a friend of mine, Dr. Judd Brewer, he's also an addiction psychiatrist, I don't know if you're familiar with his work on unwinding anxiety, and he does a lot of mindfulness stuff, but you thinking about um, anxiety is almost a built-in habit. Do you mm. feel like, because I know as a mother, mm -hmm. so my daughter went to Spain after she graduated college for this, like a couple of weeks, and I was like, yeah, but I need to know exactly where you are at all times. So that little find me app, <laughs> yeah, my, that find me app. They even my boys who are in there. You know, my kids are 27, 25, and twenty. They let me all have access to where their location is because they'd rather just let me know and not say anything, and then then deal with my phone calls. <laughs> yeah. So there's that worrying aspect of it. And when yeah. she was in Spain, I was like, she's on this little island off Barcelona. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, right. So. I've come to think that they've just kind of accepted my quirks of yeah. worry and mm -hmm. there are reasons for that. There's definitely things that had happened that why that has, why that has occurred in my life. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, do you feel like there's like that addiction component to worrying mm -hmm. or anxiety or whatever it is? Oh, for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. that's probably along with sort of love and sex addiction. For mm -hmm. me, the other big one is I'm probably addicted to my anxiety it's like mm -hmm. I have a pilot light of anxiety and it's always there. And, you know, I, I don't even sort of recognize myself without my anxiety, which is hard for me to recognize that that's the case, mm -hmm. right? Because it's such an ingrained part of me. But I think you're right. There's a way in which we kind of get attached to our ruminations mm -hmm. in an addictive way. And that's burdensome for us. And it's also burdensome for our loved ones. It is. Um, and I, yeah, and I can really relate to what you're saying, especially as a mother, as you transition from, you know, raising small children to having to renegotiate relationships with adults. And it's oh. really, really different, you know. So hard. It's so hard. <laughs> That's a whole other, we could just go on and on about that. Oh my yes. gosh. Motherhood is so hard. Yeah. And just especially too, I find, I find this transition when our children become adults and want distance and how to let go. Super, mm. super challenging. Especially yes. I think for our generation, you know, I think our parents generation they weren't all that involved right mm -mm. no um, and so like when we all became adults there was like oh wait who are you um you know but for <laughs> us we all didn't want to make that mistake so we were over involved right we were like right. you know just constantly and I don't regret my involvement in my kids lives right hopefully right. it will all have been worth it but it does mean when they're when they fire us which they do you know, around <laughs> yes, eight, they do they try to fire us around 14 they don't really manage they come to back, until they're 18 they come yeah. back 
mom they figure out mom and dad knows something i there's a yeah. this kind of a little off topic and i know that's okay really here good. there's a there's a poem about dogs and cats <clears throat> and how you're you're little when they're little your kiddos are like little puppy dogs and they love you and they think you just oh, you know yeah. the little eyes and they're I just know. <laughs> I know. They're they the want to snuggle the yes right. and then they hit that you know infamous 12 13 14 and suddenly they become cats and they're very independent and the problem is that we keep trying to parent like we did the puppy dog. That's the right. Pop, we need to parent a cat, which will right. lead to less stress. And then right. they become puppy dogs again. Yeah. It's amazing. This whole transformation. Amazing. amazing. But I'll, I shall yeah. have to send you that poem. I yeah, love no, that. Please do. I, I'd love to read it. That's, that's great. <laughs> One of my favorites. Um, any last a bit of advice you'd like to give to any of our listeners who are feeling maybe a little overwhelmed of even where to begin? Should they... Yeah, I mean, I think I'm definitely read your book. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, that's great. I think, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed about where to begin, what you, where you might start, because it's, 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 it seems like it's, it's very, it's a very concrete place to start is um, I have a whole chapter on radical truth telling, which is where we focus on telling the truth about everything, which is surprisingly hard, because we're all natural liars, we just are lying all the time about little things like, Oh, you know, sorry, I was late. Traffic was bad. It's like, well, no, I was late because I was reading the paper and drinking my coffee. Um, but this is a really interesting start. It can be an interesting starting point mm. because once we start to force ourselves to tell the truth about like where we've been and what we've been doing, it becomes real and, and sort of tangible in a new way and can then be actually the starting point for motivation for behavior change, mm -hmm. as opposed to when we don't tell people what we're doing and then we can be in denial to ourselves as well. So start mm. with radical truth telling if, if all of this seems seems overwhelming. Just go through one 24-hour period and don't lie about a single thing. It's really hard. Mm. It I I love that chapter actually. Like I said, we could spend an hour with each of your chapters. <laughs> like, but no, that was a very good one because I feel like once we start lying to ourselves, it's very easy to let others or like it's oh, yeah. almost like you're, yeah, we're mm lots of stuff there for you to go into. <laughs> but yes, I believe that that's a great way to, and there's never anything wrong with telling the truth. And so even yeah. if it's really hard to do so. Yeah, so, right. well, Dr. Lemke, thank you so much for your time. And I don't want to get off on other tangents. I feel like I'd used up even more of your time. So I appreciate it. And everyone, please check it out. Dopamine Nation and Dr. Lemke, it was such a delight. Thank you again. Oh, my pleasure too. Uh, nice to talk with you. Thanks for watching and I hope you enjoyed that video. Before you go though, please hit the subscribe button and the alert button so you will be notified whenever we upload any new videos. On Monday, we upload the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. Now, if you'd rather listen to the podcast, you can find it on all the major platforms such as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and even Spotify. Now, if you're looking for more resources on how to start a plant-based diet, sustain a plant-based diet, exercise, recipes, anything regarding wellness, we've got you covered. Check out HealthyHumanRevolution.com. And again, thanks for watching.